we certainly are a weary world at the moment. And so uh, this psalm will hopefully be medicine to our souls, right, as we've been going through that on Wednesdays, and I pray that it will be the same for us here tonight. And so Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. Um, as we've been going through, we can, you know, look at the titles here of each psalm and get a little bit of an idea of what's going on. And, and here it just says a psalm of David, and, and that's it. It doesn't give us any other hints. Um, but most scholars believe that this psalm was actually uh, written by David uh, to Solomon when he was taking over the throne. And we see that actually in 1 Kings chapter 2. Um, in chapter 1, Solomon is, is consecrated as the, the king. And David is, uh, is passing on this wisdom to Solomon that's going to take over the, the throne. And uh, so most scholars believe that this psalm here actually is, is David's words to Solomon. Now, it's an acrostic poem. That means that each of these uh, lines, every verse, begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And because of that, it reads a little different than most other psalms that we're used to. It actually reads a little bit more like a proverb. There's this dichotomy here between the wicked and the upright, or the righteous, or excuse me, the, the wicked and, and the righteous, or the upright and the wicked. And ultimately, it's going to talk about the destruction of the wicked and then what the righteous will inherit. And this will be a two-part message that we'll, we'll finish up next week. And basically, David discusses this age-old problem of, of why the righteous seem to suffer and why the wicked seem to prosper. Has anyone else ever noticed that? Right? I'm not the only one. So this is something that's been going on for, you know, throughout the beginning of time, and, and David addresses it here, and it's still very uh, important and pertinent to us today. Uh, tonight, as we go through, we're going to be in the first 11 verses, and I'm going to ask you to put your uh, Hebrew thinking caps on tonight. Uh, we're going to go and look at a lot of these different words in the Hebrew, as it really is such a rich language, and, and some of the English translations uh, sort of lose the meaning. Um, it's still, obviously, the inspired Word of God, but the Hebrew, I think, just helps us understand it a little bit better. So hopefully you're in Psalm 37. We're going to read through verses 1 to 11. And actually, I'll ask, um, as we usually do, if you guys would stand as we read through 37 verses 1 through 11. It says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. You can take a seat and pray with me, please. Lord, uh, we just thank you for this opportunity that you've given us tonight to come into your house to worship you, Lord, in spirit and truth, and, and to dive into uh, this beautiful psalm tonight that has such an application for us. Uh, Lord, all of your word has such an application for us, so may we be just students of your word, diligent to, to read and study and learn. And Lord, I ask tonight that you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, 
Lord, speak through me. Take away from what I've prepared, add to what I might have missed, Lord. And I just pray that your words and your words alone come out. Lord, let our hearts and minds be open. Fill us with your spirit and empower us to receive the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll get right into it. In verse 1 here, it starts, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. See, it's so easy to worry uh, with all that's going on, so much bad in the world. And really, it's so much easier to actually worry than to not worry. Have you guys noticed that? Just kind of our nature. We, we naturally just seem to worry uh, about all of these things. But especially Christians, sometimes we, we see all this uh, this wicked going on in the world, and that's really what this is talking about here. And seemingly, the wicked prosper. Maybe it's wealth, possessions, status, power, whatever it might be. These wicked seem to prosper, and it kind of contradicts what we understand of the Bible, or seemingly so. See, we think that, you know, as a Christian, we have this easy life, right? And God's going to take care of us, and everything's going to be great, and we're not going to have, uh, you know, any of these troubles or anything like that. Um, but most of you know by now that that's not really the case with being a believer, right? I think we can all attest to that. And if you didn't know that, uh, I don't know. I should have given you a spoiler alert or something. But um, that, that clearly is not the case. So don't fret. What does that mean? Well, I think we commonly think that it means to worry, maybe to be anxious, um, to just kind of have this, this uneasiness about what's going to happen, what the future would hold. But our first Hebrew word that we'll get into tonight is a, a word called hara, and it means to burn or to kindle, and that's actually the word here for fret. So to burn or kindle, it's this picture of, of fire, right? And it, the connotation is that you can be hot with anger. So it's not just a worry, it's not just an anxiety, but, but it's actually leading towards anger. It's, it's much more serious than that, really. Um, and it's presumably because of some sort of perceived jealousy or, or greed or, or maybe pride. You'd say, well, why do you say that? Well, the rest of verse 1 says, be not envious towards wrongdoers. So why are we told this? Why are we told not to envy? Well, it's almost that God knows what our hearts are like, right? We have this propensity towards evil. Uh, we're prone to desiring wrong things and things that, that we seek for our, our own pleasure uh, James 4, 1 through 3 tells us, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it, what you request, on your pleasures." See, we're so focused on ourselves. We don't have the mind of, of Christ. We don't have God's mind um, that's able to help us understand some of these things. So we first need to acknowledge that we have this propensity towards evil in our hearts, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that our hearts are what? Deceitful, desperately sick, or desperately wicked, full of all sorts of evil. And so we have to understand that that's, uh, that that's the beginning, right? We, we just have this, this initial propensity to fret, well, why shouldn't we fret? Verse 2 tells us, For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. See, they're only around for a short time, a short while, just a season, and then they'll be gone. And see, in, in the land of Israel, especially, uh, you know, this area where we're talking about, uh, today Israel's a really lush, green place. You've probably heard that since uh, Israel came back to land in 1948, and 
1967, and, and there's been so much going on that they've, they've kind of uh, recultivated this land, and it's green and, and lush, and it's, it's beautiful. But there's parts of it still that are kind of a desert wasteland, and um, certainly years ago it was like that. Ironically enough, and I'll, I'll try to give you an analogy here, um, Jerusalem and the areas of Jer- around Jerusalem actually look very much like Corona. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that. How many of you guys have been to Israel? I know there's probably some in the room, a few people. So you can probably concur with me. I went the first time in 2012, and you know you wake up at some crazy hour in the morning. You go to LAX. You're on the plane for what feels like three days. You finally get to Israel. You're so excited. You know it's a super cool airport they have, by the way. You get there and you get on a bus and it takes you into Jerusalem. And as you're driving, you start to ascend a little bit through these hills, and it's like these look like the foothills of Corona. That looks like skyline. It's really interesting that there's this this similarity, but. What happens to, uh, to the green herb and to the grass here in Corona? You guys know? <laughs> Pretty much dies, right? In just a short season. Same way in Israel. That's what happens. So that you would have these seasons where, where the rain would come and it would be lush and, and green and the vegetation would be, uh, would be flourishing. But the next season, in the blink of an eye, just like a vapor, it would be gone. It would be scorched. It would be dried up. It would be gathered away and it would be no longer. And so David's telling Solomon here, you know, don't worry about these evildoers. Their time is short. They might have all these great things. They might have wealth and riches and, and power, but it's for a short season. Verse 3 tells us, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. So there's this prescription that we see here, starting in verse 3, for why we shouldn't fret. And if we look at the first word of the subsequent verses, three, four, five, we'll see trust, we'll see delight, and we'll see commit. These three words. These are the ways that we can combat these things, right? So trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So let's kind of examine these one at a time. Trust in the Lord and do good. Seems pretty easy enough, right? If I ask you guys, how many of you guys trust the Lord? Hopefully you all say you trust the Lord, right? But what does that look like? What does trust really mean, right? When, when the rubber hits the road, so to speak. We know that Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. See, we lean not on our own understanding, but we acknowledge him. And here's another Hebrew word. The Hebrew word um, for acknowledge is actually the word yada, and that means to know, generally or metaphorically speaking. But most often it's talking about kind of this intimate setting, this, this more deep uh, relational type of knowing. It's actually used... Um, for sexual relations between a spouse, between a husband and and wife. It's this deep depth of intimacy. So we have to have that with the Lord, right? We need to have this this deep relationship with him. We must know God before we can trust him. And see, trust is really the opposite of fretting. We we take our eyes off of ourselves and off of others and, and what's going around, our circumstances. We focus on God and we acknowledge uh, who he is, we look not at ourselves, but we look at him, and that's how we're able to trust God. Along with trust, we're told that we need to do good. 
James says that you know, faith without works is dead. In a similar fashion, we must have some sort of action behind our trust. I asked you guys, do you trust the Lord? And most of you said yes, and hopefully all of you said that yes. But would there be any actions to back that up? Would I be able to see that? Would others be able to see that in your life? Maybe your closest circle, your spouse, your friends, your family. Would they be able to see the confident trust that you have in the Lord? Back in verse 3, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. So the word dwell means really to settle down or to reside in a place. And actually, uh, it can mean to stay in a place permanently, to be so rooted um, in, this, in this place. Uh, Strong's Hebrew Dictionary says it can mean to lie down or rest. And when used in this way, it can refer to objects, to animals, or to people. And when people are the object of the verb, it means that they are resting in peace and resting in security. So you remember, this is the land that the Israelites were promised. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12. And this land was supposed to be a place of rest. The land itself was a place of rest for the Israelites, for God's chosen people. And God is essentially saying that, that he wants them to lie down in the land that he has given you. Essentially, he's saying, rest in the promise that I have given you. It's not just a physical land. There's so much more that's tied into it. But it's this promise that's there. And see, in, in the midst of, of evil or perceived evil and, and people that are uh, seemingly prospering, uh, we're supposed to remain faithful. We're not supposed to let that shake us or, or pull us down or distract us from the Lord. See, leaving the land, that's why it says to, to dwell, to leave the land or to flee somewhere else, was really tantamount to saying that, that God's promises weren't true. It was tantamount to saying that he wasn't faithful that the land that he promised wasn't good enough. And there are several stories in, in Ruth, actually. Dan was reading Ruth when I came in here this evening. Um, but there's several stories where people flee the land because there's, there's peril or there's famine or there's injustice or, or there's war. But that's really saying that, that there's not trust in the Lord, in his promises. Now, I don't say that to say that fleeing should never be an option. You know, sometimes it is, but there really is something to staying put, to remaining faithful where you are at. And that could be, uh, you know, a home, it could be a job, it could be whatever predicament that you're in. But when you dwell, when, when you remain, when you stay in the place that God has put you, wherever that place has, has been, you're really saying, I trust you, Lord. I trust you. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fret. And really, um, actually, we're going to skip that. We're going to go back to verse 3. Uh, so while we dwell, while we're in that land, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to cultivate faithfulness. Some translations actually say to feed on faithfulness. And that's what we're supposed to do in, in the land. Um, cultivate is another Hebrew word, ra'ah, and it means to pasture or to tend or to graze. Think of a shepherd imagery there. And it's a it's the imagery of the shepherd really providing for his sheep. You see, the flock of Israel was led to this pasture, to this promised land, and God was instructing them to feed on the land, and he was instructing them again to rest on the pasture that he provided. We know that Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. Now, the shepherd doesn't always lead his sheep where the sheep want to go, right? Sheep are quite dumb animals, as you guys have heard, and ironically, that's the animal that the Lord decides to compare us to throughout his word over and over and over again. 
I don't know why that is. But anyway, um, sheep can sometimes just be really stupid. They can be scared. They can be disoriented. They could be dumb. They could be feeding on this horrible uh, pasture, this horrible ground full of thorns and, and thistles, and, and maybe miss this lush green pasture that's, that's just around the corner or just down the road. But we have a shepherd that, that provides for us. He leads us. Um, and so he, he's providing for us here, and he's telling us to lay down. He's telling us ultimately uh, that he's going to provide for us and that he's going to give us rest. So two things here. So to trust and to dwell. And the next thing is going to be to delight. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. How many of you guys have heard that verse before, right? That's usually the ones that you see like on a wall sign or something in the house. You know, it sounds great, right? Trust in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. I mean, whatever I want, right? This is like, it's like a, a, what is that thing called? Slot machine, right? You know, you just keep hoping, you just keep pulling the thing and the Lord's going to give you what you want. Uh, I know I sure, you know, thought that I understood this verse years ago, right? It was great. I'm just going to, I'm going to delight in the Lord, everything about the, the Lord. And then he's just going to give me whatever I want. Uh, sadly, we see a lot of... Um, People kind of fall prey to this with this, you know, idea of prosperity gospel or health and wealth gospel, but that's really not what this is talking about here. Um, so what is the word delight? Well, the word is actually a nog, and it means to take exquisite delight. And uh, commentator Warren Wearsby says this. He says that the root word comes from a word that means to be brought up in luxury or to be pampered. And it speaks of the abundance of the blessings we have in the Lord himself, totally apart from what he gives us. To enjoy the blessings and ignore the blesser is to commit idolatry. In Jesus Christ, we have all God's treasures and we need no other. If we truly delight in the Lord, then the chief desire of our heart will be to know him better so that we can delight in him even more. And the Lord will satisfy that desire. This is not a promise for people who want things, but this is a promise for people who want more of God in their lives. And see, we don't delight in the Lord to get something, right? It's, it's not the means to an end. We're just supposed to delight in the Lord, period, right? He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our delight. We're going to take a look, uh, actually, at Isaiah 58, if you guys want to flip over to that. We're going to see where this word delight is also used to hopefully give us a better understanding of, of what it's talking about here. And in Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 13, it says, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, there's that word, anag, of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and from speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, if we honor the Sabbath, we will have delight. It's kind of an interesting concept. We know as Christians that we're not, we're not bound by that, right, to keep the Sabbath. But what was the Sabbath? Well, we'll take a look at that. First and foremost, it was a day of rest, right? It was a whole day committed to rest. Israel was commanded not to do any work. You guys have heard that, right? But more importantly, besides ceasing from work, it was really to commune with God. It was to connect with him. It was a whole day entirely devoted to the Lord. Sabbath is, uh, in Hebrew, the word Shabbat, right? It literally means to cease or to rest, 
goes all the way back actually to Genesis 2, verse 2. Um, when God ceased from his work, from creating that worth, it's actually a form of that word Shabbat. He ceased from creation. He, he rested from his work. He Shabbated from his work. I don't know if that's a word. I don't think I can uh, use it in that context. But he Shabbated from his work on the seventh day. And in the Hebrew picture language, Shabbat actually means to return to the covenant. It's this interesting idea. So you're returning back, essentially, to the Lord. So for six days, they would work. Man would work. He would go about his way. But on the seventh day, he would return to God. And see, if we turn from our pleasures and from our ways and from our words, just as Isaiah 58 says, and we rest, we will return to that covenant. We will essentially return to God. And then we will find pleasure. We will find that exquisite delight in the Lord. Now, intertwined with the Sabbath, um, there's two things. There's rest, and then there's also provision. And so rest was what was commanded, of course, and then, and then provision was promised. And even before the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20, uh, the Sabbath was already given. If you would turn with me to Exodus 16, we'll read a little chunk here. Beginning in verse 22, it says, Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So this idea of, of provision, see, we don't need to worry. God will provide for us. And that was what he was trying to get across here. But the Israelites didn't get it. And we can go on and on about, you know, all of the, the times that the Israelites just missed it and they complained and they just fell over and over and over. Um, we're actually not so far off. Amen. We, a lot of times we kind of look at the Israelites and go, man, those, those guys were horrible. You know, all, all they did was complain all the time. And we find ourselves complaining, right, about the fact that they complained all the time. But we, we need to, to see here that God's provision is really intertwined with rest. See, we won't have a need for looking elsewhere. We won't have a need for going out and looking at things apart from God or away from God or, or to see what the world would have to offer because ultimately all of the provision that we need is met from the Lord. And there's also a New Testament parallel to this idea in Matthew 6.33. You guys all know this verse says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself or each day has enough worry of its own. The word seek there is actually, um, you know, used continually. So the idea is to continually seek, to keep on seeking. It's not a one-time thing. You don't, you don't seek God once and then all of a sudden he's just going to provide everything from here to eternity. You've got to keep seeking. 
kind of keep going after these things. And we really have to keep looking to the Lord. We have to keep delighting in the Lord. This is kind of a consistent theme. We have to keep going over and over and over. So we delight in the Lord, back to verse 4, and he will give us the desires of our heart. Well, this doesn't mean that God will grant every desire we have, right? Uh, They can be whimsical desires, irresponsible desires, really selfish desires at times. So you may desire wealth, power, success, whatever these things are. That may not be God's will for you. It probably isn't God's will for you, actually. And you may see the evil and the wicked around you prospering, what this is talking about here in in verse 1. You'll see them with wealth, and you'll think, man, if if they're evil and they have such great wealth, I'm this this righteous person. I'm a believer. I should have more of that, right? We we get this, this thought in our minds sometimes, but if we go back to James 4, we remember that we have because we ask with wrong motives. See, we don't really ask for the things that God wants and that God desires. We ask for the things that we want and we desire that are going to make us happy, that are going to make us supposedly fulfilled, that are going to bring us joy, and so on and so on. You've probably heard before that if your desires don't line up with with God's will, that he's not going to give them to you, right? But see, the more we delight in the Lord, the more we know him, we'll no longer want the things that we want. We will begin to align our hearts with his. We will begin to desire what is best for us according to him, not according to our, to our own understanding. And see, we, we trust that, that God as our shepherd is the one that's going to provide for us, and he will give us exactly what we need. This word desires here, Hebrew word, is called mishalot, and it refers to a request or a petition. And we can think of it kind of like a a prayer request, right? So again, these aren't these selfish desires, but they're essentially the the things that we're going before God for and we're we're pleading and and, and we're begging. We're just bringing these things to his feet and saying, Lord, you know, this this is something I'm going to leave at your feet. This is something I'm going to let you take control of. But ultimately, these desires are not for our own satisfaction. And see, the desires of our heart, once we don't fret, once we've learned not to do that, but to trust in him, to dwell in him, to uh, experience rest in him. Those desires uh, will be his. We will know God, that, that Hebrew word yada, where we know him so well in this, this deep relationship. We'll know his heart and his will becomes our will. And that's ultimately the place that we want to get to. Verse five says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do it. Proverbs 16.3 has a very similar wording, very similar concept where it says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Hebrew word for commit is a word galah. This is a really interesting word. It literally means to roll away or to move away. And it's this idea of you're, you're pushing or you're rolling. A lot of times it's used of a stone or some heavy object. You think that's kind of a weird word, you know, right? To roll something away. How is it translated as commit? Well, in English... So I was talking about, it's, you know, Hebrew is such a rich language, it doesn't translate word for word, right? So we wouldn't say, roll to the Lord. That doesn't really make sense, right? But what's the idea behind it, right? And so this word, uh, it can be used to describe abstract concepts beyond just this physical rolling a stone. Um, but it can actually be used to describe one's ways and one's work rolled onto or committed to or entrusted to someone else. And here it's talking about God. So we roll these things off. And there's almost this picture uh, back from Matthew 11 that we talked about with this idea of, you know, taking our, our burdens off of ourselves, right? 
those who are weary and, and heavy laden, we will find rest in, in the Lord. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. He, was, he, ugh, he will help us carry those things, right? Uh, I think it's 1 Peter 5, 7 that says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, it's the same idea. I think it's 1 Peter 5, 7. You have to fact check me on that. I think that's like a thing now, right? Everything's fact checked, right? It's a little disclaimer on the bottom. So if I mess that up, you guys will have to fact check me on the, on the screen there. So verse 5, trust in him and he will do it. I love what Pastor Chuck Smith has to say on this, and I don't think I can say it better, so I will paraphrase directly from him. And it says, the word do, or the Hebrew word asa, is he shall assemble it. He shall bring it into existence. Commit your way, trust in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And then finally, when you've gotten to the place where you can commit your life and the affairs of your life into God's hands, then you have arrived at the place of that glorious resting in the Lord, where you say, God, I'm just resting in you. Whatever comes, Lord, however, it's all in your hands. Verse 6, and he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. The NIV renders this, he will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn and your vindication like the noonday sun. And the judgment or vindication here, it's using legal terminology and kind of the idea here is that there was like a court proceeding going on and there was ultimately going to be this, this judgment. And at the judgment, your righteousness will be shining as the light, kind of like me in this light here. The light will be shining on you. Your righteousness will be evident before all. See, a lot of times uh, throughout Scripture, we can see that our righteousness is maybe obscured or, or hidden or clouded over. But at a certain point in time, that's all going to be pulled away. It's going to be revealed. The light's going to shine on it. And we can think uh, of the life of Job, certainly. We know that Job was a righteous man, right? We just went through that book here recently. Job was a righteous man. But his horrible circumstances, they clouded that righteousness, right? He had friends that mocked him, that called him names. They brought reproaches upon him. His life literally fell apart, right? And he was seeing the seeming success and prosperities of, of those around him, but not him, even though he was a righteous man. But at the end of the, ver- at the book of Job, at the very end, God finally answers Job and he begins to express his displeasure with Job's friends that were mocking him, that were saying all these things about him. And Job's fortunes were ultimately destroyed. In a sense, this is a picture that he was vindicated, that his righteousness finally came to light and his judgment was like the noonday. And so as we go back, we can look at these, these first words that we went through, the first word of each verse here. And remembering that this is an acrostic poem, but, but the idea here is it says, don't fret or do not fret or fret not for trust, delight, commit. So there's this prescription, right, of what we're supposed to do to not fret. And the last one is rest. It's our final word to look at here. And, and our theme for the messages in this kind of, um, this Advent season, we're talking about hope, but we're talking about a weary world. We're talking about rest. And verse 7 says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. See, rest here literally means to be still, but even more to be silent, actually. 
You can think of uh, Psalm 46.10 where it says, be still and know that I am God. That's a similar uh, word, but this one really specifically is actually be silent. Don't say anything. We can see that David here might even be saying, you know, shh. Shane talked about uncomfortable silences, right? Last Sunday, that was one of those uncomfortable silences. But I, I think David is, is maybe here telling us, um, if I could even suggest uh, so far as to say, don't complain. Don't mutter. Don't talk bad about all this other wicked and evil that's going on around you. Just shh. Wait patiently for him. And so wait patiently for the Lord. Uh, patiently is actually a, a Hebrew word called hul. It means to whirl or to dance or to writhe. And it can actually mean to tremble in fear or to writhe in pain. That sounds very different than waiting patiently, right? It's actually even used talking about the pain of childbirth, interestingly enough. Um, my wife just gave birth uh, to our little baby girl about five months ago. And I will tell you that the pain of delivery, and most of you women in the room can probably attest to this, um, there's not a lot of patience intertwined with that, is there? Uh, there's not a lot of silence. There's not a lot of shh. I don't even want to know what would happen if I told my wife, hey, honey, shh, just rest. Just wait patiently for, for the Lord. It's going to be okay. But what I think the Lord's trying to tell us here is that he knows it's not going to be easy. He knows it's hard. He can sympathize with us, right? So when we see all this wicked and all this evil going around, he knows it's going to be difficult. He's telling us to wait patiently, yes. But as I was studying for this, I just kind of got this image of like, you know, little kids like sit on their hands sometimes. You know, you tell them, hey, sit on your hands so you don't move them around. And it's just like so uncomfortable and you want to move and it's just so frustrating. It's kind of like this, this writhing and, and, and moving around. That's a lot of times what we do when we see all this craziness going on in our world. You know, we, we just want to jump up and say something. But the Lord's telling us to do the exact opposite of that here. And really, it's a discipline that I think that he wants to, to teach us, right? A lot of times, rest is a noun, and it certainly can be, but here it's a verb. It's an action. We are to rest. And that's going to take work from us each and every day. Uh, Paul seemingly uh, had learned this. In Philippians 4.11, where he says, Not that I speak from need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And in this particular case, he was talking about, you know, having wealth and, and, and riches or, or going without and having nothing. Um, but ultimately, there was this confident trust that he had in the Lord, that he could rest. He knew that the Lord was his provider, and whatever would, would come his way, the Lord was with him. Verse 8 says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. The word forsake is actually very similar to the, the word fret, which we talked about a little bit before, this idea of, of burning or, or heat or a fire. And the idea is anger, hot displeasure, indignation, poison, rage. That's a little bit more than, um, than just fretting, right? Seems, seems to be a little, little more intense here. And so David's saying, you know, don't be angry. Don't, don't burn up. Don't, don't even be enticed by it because it leads only to evil. We know that anger is a powerful emotion and it ultimately will lead us to sin if we don't keep it in check. So it's something that we really need to watch out for. James 1, 19 through 20. Who knew that James had so many uh, parallels to Psalm 37, right? James 1, 19 through 20 says, 
the famous verb that, well, Paul always talks about it here, right? Quis, right? That everyone should be, what, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Verse 20. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's why we're not to anger. See, if we allow this, this anger, this hatred, this burning, this rage to fester within us, it will lead us to sin. Matthew 5 tells us that we can actually be guilty of the spirit of murder. If you guys can think of, of that Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, you know, he says that anyone who, uh, anyone who says you fool or anyone who says you good for nothing to his brother will be guilty before the court or will be guilty of the fiery hell. So we know that anger uh, certainly is a sin. And it leads towards that. And so as Christians, we need to make sure that we, we don't let that fester, that we don't let that happen. Now, we can have a righteous anger towards evil. We know that that's okay. There's the idea of not being angry with our brother. But we can have a righteous anger. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry, yet... Come on, help me out. Do not sin. Be angry, yet do not sin. But it's kind of a slippery slope, right? And so we, we just need to be cautioned that that we stay far away from this anger and from really letting it start to build up within us. Verse 9 tells us really ultimately why we shouldn't do that. And it says of evildoers that they will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. And as we finish the psalm next week, we'll get in a little bit more about this idea of the evildoers being cut off. So we're going we're to skip over that for now. We'll go down to those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Again, this was the promised land, right? That was promised to the Israelites. And to inherit the land was really to have the, the right to reside in this land that Yahweh had, had given to his people. And they're subsequently able to enjoy his care and, and his blessing. This just whole idea of, of rest in this land. It's, uh, it's a state of rest that's enjoyed. It's not just the physical land. And it encompasses all of God's blessings there. Verse 10 says, yet a little while and the wicked will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. And see, the idea here is that the Lord's intervention is, is imminent, right? This short season that we talked about from verse 2. These, these wicked, they're not going to prosper for long. They're going to be like the grass. They're going to wither away. Isaiah 55 tells us, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor, and the time is stamped firm. Yet in a little while, the time of harvest will come for her. And Hosea 1.4, and the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. It's this concept of yet a little while we see throughout scripture Again, James 4 tells us that our life on earth is but a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. And especially when we compare to eternity, right? This is really, truly just a little while. It says you will look for them and, and you will see them no more. One day, we're going to forget all about this. We fret so much in the here and now in this life on earth, but one day when we are here no longer, when we are with the Lord, we're not going to remember this. It's going to be gone. It's going to be past. And our final verse here as we wind down, verse 11 says, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. 
The word humble is a Hebrew word, anav, and it means the poor or the afflicted or the meek. And it can mean those that are oppressed by the rich or powerful. And this was a promise of God, of course, and it's still a promise to us, right? When we feel that we're afflicted or that we're oppressed, and it might be by these evildoers that we see all around us. We might have uh, things that are actually affecting us, not just a, a desire that we maybe covet their, their riches or their, their power or whatever else is going on, but, but whatever evil is happening in the world, when that surrounds us, God is reminding us just a little while, right? They will be no more and you will inherit the land. You will find rest. You will ultimately come to that place. That promise is true. So if we, if we change that, that word enough and, and we substitute the word meek, we see that the meek will inherit the land, which should sound familiar to us from Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says that, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Most scholars believe that, uh, that Jesus is actually quoting from this psalm when, uh, when he says that in Matthew 5, 5. And, and that word blessed, or blessed, means to be happy or fortunate. Specifically here in the Beatitudes, as it goes through that, that list, it's talking about those that receive God's favor regardless of their circumstance. So it doesn't have to do with the present circumstance, what they're in, but they are blessed because of what was to come, really because of who was to come. And at that time, he had come. Um, in the same way, you know, we find ourselves overwhelmed, we find ourselves surrounded by, by evil, and we are blessed still. Not because of the circumstance that we're in, but because of what will come. Our vindication will come. It will eventually come. The last part of verse 11, and they will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. It's kind of like the verse we've all been waiting for, right? All of these things, and now we're finally going to get to delight in abundant prosperity, right? All the things I've wanted, all the things I've seen these, these people have, money and, and riches and all of these things, you know, they, they seemingly have success, those who do evil, right? We, we want a little bit of that. But another Hebrew word for prosperity, the word used here, is actually the word shalom. We know that as peace, right? But it refers to uh, completeness, soundness, welfare, being whole, being wholly well. The Hebrew picture language shalom is... Uh, actually means to destroy the authority that causes chaos. It's kind of a beautiful picture that we see there, right? Shalom is the destruction of chaos. It's the exact opposite of chaos, really. So ultimately, we're going to find peace from all the chaos around us. We're going to have an abundance of peace. That's what we're going to have. Not material wealth. Not prosperity as we commonly know it in our, our English in modern times. But we're going to have an abundance of peace. How sweet is that? And the idea of rest is, is really intertwined with peace here as well. See, those that have rest, they can do so because they have peace with God. And those that have peace with God can rest in God. See, ultimately, the, the rest we experience is not the rest that we think of today, right? I think a lot of times we, we interpose the word rest for leisure, Right? I'm going to take time off. I'm going to have a day off. I'm going to have a day of rest. And we might have a nice, you know, quiet Saturday or Sunday afternoon, spend time with family, read a book, you know, go on a walk, have a nice meal, whatever it is, right? 
You might experience a great time of leisure. You might feel rested. But ultimately, you're not experiencing the same type of rest. See, rest is much deeper than leisure. And really, the rest talked about here is is a rest that only God can provide. Um, It's this supreme trust and confidence in the Lord. It's hope in God. It's something that only he can give perfectly. Just as Jesus gives water to those that are thirsty, and his water, uh, when they drink, they will never thirst again, right? It's also the bread of life. We know that. And the bread that he gives us, when we eat of it, we'll never go hungry. We'll be fully satiated. We'll never uh, hunger again. And in the same way, we have rest from the Lord. It's a whole different kind of rest. It's a kind of rest that only he can provide. And it's complete and it's perfect. It's eternal. It's a rest that only he can provide. See, when we have abundance of peace, not abundant prosperity, but an abundance of peace, then we will not fret. We will be able to trust. We will be able to delight. We will be able to commit. And we will be able to rest. So next week, we're going to finish up this psalm, and we're going to look at the idea of what's going to happen to those that are righteous, what's in store for them, and ultimately, what is going to come of the wicked, of the evildoers. We'll get a little more into the type of evil that they're actually doing and committing in this land. But this first section really applies to us. There's really a lesson that we need. There's this prescription, again, that we can follow so that we don't fret. Church, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you uh, for this evening and for this opportunity, Lord, as we get to really just study your word that you have written to us, Lord. It's so precious. It's so beautiful. There are so many great promises. In you, Lord, we have fullness of joy. We have rest. We have perfect rest. And Lord, in you alone and through your power alone do we have the power to not fret. We have the power to be able to trust you, to delight in you, to commit to you, and ultimately to have that rest. Lord, if there is anyone that doesn't know that rest, that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would come to know it this season. It's as simple as as crying out to you, Lord. You, You gave that beautiful invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls a different type of rest, Lord. And I pray that throughout this Advent season as well, that we all as believers, that we would be ambassadors of this rest and of this hope that can only be found in you, Lord. Equip us, empower us to be your mouthpiece, that we would go out and that we would tell of the great news, the great joy that is only to be found in you, Lord. Would you bless all that are here tonight, Lord, all that are watching online. Lord, we thank you, we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.